What's up? This is Table for Two, the podcast about general nonsense, <laughs> where KYT thinks that he can trick me into talking about high-level strategy, but he ain't got the skills for that. At Esports Central. Esports Central, yeah. <laughs> Place where KYT managed to get a coffee, courtesy of our listeners, but the machine broke before I could get one, so <laughs> it's kind of the classic story of, of this venture. KYT gets everything. He keeps, you know, he keeps asking for more coffees, but really, that money's just going into his pocket. You know, <laughs> just he's just living it up in his mansion. You know, well, oh. the, well, the poor people can't even get a coffee. I was, I, I wanted us to go to the second cup, but uh, yeah, here we are. You never said that. I never said that. I never, I never said that. <laughs> you liar. Anymore. But I wanted us. No, you to just go wanted there. it in your head, but you never, yeah. never expressed that want. So. After finishing the season, you finished in the the top thousand mythic, right? In constructed. Yeah. Uh, Congratulations. So it's safe to say you can be fifty with a few days out, and slid to a hundred and and ten or something. All right. And uh, no, we, we some people, I don't know, I don't really know how hard it is because if you check um, my tweets for when I just went on this random run from diamond all the way to fifty, it was pretty fast. I was just like tweeting out every two matches and I just r- ranked up and then like a boss like a boss but I obviously went on a, on a heater and I, I've seen people say like it's been tough or they fell out of the 1000 and with a few days left they didn't feel like grinding back up yeah and but I, I can't relate to that because I just like yeah, it was just too easy for you I yeah. went from 99% whatever 95% all the way to 50 in in an afternoon, so yeah, no. One the the one time I tried constructed grinding, I just got to like number one in like you know, from starting from nothing in a few days. Yeah. So I was like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's just too easy. Man. <laughs> it's just too easy. But yeah, I, I didn't do constructed this time. I ended up number five in limited though, which is respectable. The Siggy uh, finished first. Yeah, Siggy finished first. I decided not to contest it for him for it. <laughs> Mainly due to laziness, I didn't I didn't play anymore since I got fifth. I played a little bit on on quote unquote stream on uh, during the Mythic Invitational when I mean Mythic Championship when uh, I invited pros to watch behind me when they thought I was streaming but wasn't. Got a shout out in the the Bash Bros yeah, podcast. I, yeah. I listened because of your tweet. I decided yeah. to check their pod for the yeah. first time. Yeah, Corey just lied. He just lied on it. <laughs> yeah, he said he messaged you. Yeah, he he did not message me. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think I didn't know. Yeah, I've seen BBD around with you when I was going to different GPs. Um, He's gas. He's great. I I didn't know. It it hasn't uh, shown through his wild, hilarious, silly personality unless when he's on Brad's stream or when he's talking about on the podcast, when he's talking about uh, his, his experience. He's a very silly guy. Oh, yeah. Very silly. And he's currently number one rated magic player in the world, according to Mythic Points. Okay. Number one after his top 16 performance at the Mythic Championship. So, yeah. How did that happen? How did he end up with... How did Brad not unseat him? Well, because BBD had the, the PT top top eight. Okay. The Mythic Championship table top top eight. See, even just like... It just feels awkward even for me, and I'm an actual prof- professional at this, to say the right names for all these things. I hope that they decide to not make everything Mythic at some point. Maybe they'll be legendary instead, you know? <laughs> it's like, wow, you made top 100 legendary. Except they can't do that because that's what Hearthstone says. So, I, I kind of like the love the system. I, I feel like it's a grind at the beginning, but I'm being reset to diamond or whatever. Or platinum, platinum, I think. And then I can just... 
I feel like I don't have to grind the whole month, honestly. Like, well, you don't to, really need to grind at all anymore, right? Because, right. Uh, because you're now into the MCQ. I wish there were incentive to do so, but well, even the, if there the was... The incentive is, to, is that you get better tiebreakers the higher your finish is in the Mythic Ladder. I guess there's also incentive so that I get reset to Platinum for the next month. Yeah. For, for whenever the, the next month is. Um, and it I don't, honestly, it feels kind of good, this system, to me. Like, versus... Um, like Shadowverse, I tried to to hit all the way to like the highest, like the Grandmaster level. I never did that, but here... I, can't, I can't speak to that. But I, I, I just assume I would be Grandmaster. <laughs> <laughs> Magic Arena was able to get like gold, uh, diamond, platinum, uh, mythic, and not to be reset all the way to zero. And now I can just like hit mythic and, and challenge. Now I can safely challenge for number one, which is what I wanted to do. But uh, nice. you had an interesting tournament this past, was it this past weekend? Yes, I had played in the Fandom Legends uh, Casters Cup. So Fandom Legends, they run a tournament basically every week. They'll, they don't have one this week because it's July 4th on Thursdays. And uh, where they usually invite 16 people, mix of, of pros and streamers, and... Uh, they give out a bunch of prizes and people play while on stream and it's pretty cool i've done commentary for a few of them and because of that i was invited to this thing which is eight people only casters cup double elimination eight person tournament and i finished fourth i was playing mono blue giving it one last hurrah before things shifted so i thought it was actually reasonably positioned but i lost to brad and siggy after beating uh your 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 buddy uh <laughs> I have a lot of buddies. <laughs> you know which buddy I'm talking about, though, no? Travis. Oh, you beat Semulin. Semulin, yeah. And uh, and and PV. And uh, it was a fun tournament. And uh, even last place got money. So Who are fandom cool. legends, though? Just like a random... They're a website that, that has to do with various, you know, fandoms. And they're branching out into magic. And it's pretty cool. It's like... You know, just like the, there's the Twitch Rivals tournaments, and now there, and there's the Red Bull tournaments that happen this weekend too, and uh, that's cool. Like that's that's where like a lot of the future magic I think is not just in these Wizards organized tournaments, but in these side organizers who think that they get enough exposure out of running magic tournaments, either from the viewers or from the people who are interested in participating, that you know they they can make it worthwhile. Well, if they value, like, building their brand, it definitely... Well, it worked on me, because I keep hearing fandom legends constantly on, yeah. on a daily... I, I never heard of them before. Before basis. they were on these terms. Yeah. And uh, it, it's pretty cool. I mean, they, they basically put $4,000 every week into one of these tournaments, right? Plus what they they pay the, the, the production crew and the casters. So it's, uh, it's pretty reasonable commitment, right? I mean... I know they get. I think they get some money from Wizards because Wizards is ten million. I think they said some of it is for outside tournament organizers to Ooh. help that. So, I think so, they get, but I don't really know. And it's even with that, I'm sure they're putting in a lot of money themselves. So it's really cool to see people doing this, which they didn't really do before for Magic, right? There was just like SCG Circuit. Their TCG player had some circuit. There's uh, you know the Channel Fireball Circuit. Maybe there's a Canadian circuit. I can't remember, but. Uh, I'm kidding. Face-to-face -face circuit. I was, I was giving you an opportunity to plug, KYT. I know you love to plug. I love to plug our shit. So coffee.com slash table for two. That's the best. <laughs> um, I Okay, it seems like Phantom Legends is legit. Yeah. But we're seeing a rise of these, 
I don't know what the white word is. Sketchy is probably not the... Arena Super Cup? No. <laughs> <laughs> Arena Super... Hey, it's happening here at Esports Central. Is it? No. In, uh... I don't know when the date is. I think it's, it might be late August or September. So are, are they inviting the second best player in Quebec? Yeah. They are inviting the second best player slash defending <laughs> champion to to the uh, to this invitational. But is the best player in Quebec going to be there again? Pascal Maynard <laughs> doing commentary. And by Quebec, I mean Quebec City. <laughs> the best player in Quebec City. Well, I mean, I mean Ke- Kevin Actel uh, might be returning home. Yeah, he's he's saying he wants to he wants to battle. After like, he's been listening to our shows, and, and I think he wants to uh, fight for uh, my claim to uh, as number two best player. <laughs> um, yeah, well, Kevin Angtil's a cool guy. I know uh, Pascal at one point thought, thought he was going to be better than him, and he's, he won a PTQ or MCQ. Was, uh, I think, a Hearthstone pro or semi-pro at one point. But yeah, back to what I want to say was we're seeing a lot of these um, sketchy, I guess, low follower count esports organizations that some are like i don't know even based locally and i just don't i don't get it i don't understand the concept i don't understand um what their business model is because i've i've seen some of their sites and some of their sites aren't even i mean honestly they look like they're still under construction a lot of them but i can't i can't really attack them because it just reminds me of like right me starting man deprived and uh it was it was like vincent depot the the first contributor he's like who's where is this article going Uh, i'm like he had to believe in me that i was going to make a site and that people would eventually there would be a non-zero audience to To be fair though he didn't actually get anything out of it ultimately so shout out to shout out to other than these shout outs that you give him But no, I mean, you know, people go and they open up hamburger restaurants all the time, right? Even though McDonald's exists, even though Burger King exists, and you can try and put out a superior product, you're not going to get as wide a market, and you're, you know, it's going to be a struggle to be profitable to the level that these things are, but, you know, it is a different world because everybody kind of has access to, like, with the internet, anybody could be on one of these big orgs, so it's like, what are you really doing? that's different what are you doing that you know you and a lot of it is people are i think that some people are like deluding themselves uh or they're doing it because it feels good rather than you know making a profit because i'm really skeptical a lot of these things turning a profit like i've talked to you about this esports central place it's awesome i love hanging out here i I like coming here to support them because i'm really skeptical that this is going to be a profitable (laughs) venture as, as we look around, yeah, as we look around to see if the owner's looking at us. But I mean, you know, you, you pour like what 750k into a place like this, and how many people at five dollars an hour or whatever are you really gonna get to pay your costs? I, I don't know. Similarly, with these esports orgs of people paying people money to represent them, are they really getting enough advertising money out of it? I think esports is a interesting field where i've read some articles on it and a lot of even the major teams are really like breaking even all the time because they pay a lot of money for the talent compared to how much revenue they get in they often have a lot of big sponsors that are that are paying for things and i think these lower level places are often sponsor people who don't cost as much money you know if you're just paying someone who gets a reasonable number of people on stream to to stream a certain number of hours of your thing and you know you you probably still lose a little bit of money, but your plan is that in ten years you'll have a little bit more brand recognition. And that's worth the, you know, 
thousand dollars a month that it costs you or something. Yeah, yeah. With Mountain Prime, I was at least it's like part of building that is like creating content, which is something I, at the time I like doing for free on my free time because I had a lot of it. I really wanted to build my the community, so that was my focus. And you know, I'm curious, like, do these esports owner uh, club owners just want to have like a small team and, and they feel good about you know calling a bunch of people part of their squad? And I think we we also talked about this um, outside of the of the show. We had some I forget random conversation about let's say writing talent, and yeah. I think you mentioned how the mid level like the the there's a the clout that you get from like the top tier is way more important than all these average uh, players, uh, multiple average writers with average notoriety combined. And I think it's almost like, also random analogy, because I've, I've heard that from, from even sports like basketball, where you know pro- probably someone, even LeBron James, the best player in the world, he's probably underpaid even at the max contract. Yeah. So yeah, like, a, I mean, how much is he paid more than the other, the people, you know, like, compared to the, how much people are paid for articles? You know, you you have some idea of this stuff, but I think a lot of people would be surprised the disparity in what an article you read, even on a main main website, someone's getting paid. one. You could read one article from someone who's getting paid $20 store credit, which is effectively, you know, th- thank you for your time. Someone could even just be doing it for free, just for the exposure. You know, people die of exposure out there, though, in Canada. But, and some people could be getting a thousand US dollars for their article or more. So, you know, I'd say that that's that's obviously rare. I think, you know, but I think most of these websites function from having, you know, like 90% people who effectively get paid nothing or store credit, and then 10% people who, you know, are basically getting all, all the money. They're getting, you know, at least like $500 an article or something. And they those names bring in people, but often, you know, the lower level people are actually better writers and they have valuable things to say, but how are you going to believe believe them if if, you know, if Ben Stark, shout out to Ben Stark, gives you a limited article saying this is what you should do, you know, you're going to you're going to pay attention. He's got the clout, right? He's got the, that name recognition. He's done it. He's gone and he's had tournament success. So you know that he's got a proven track record of the things he believes having a reflection in reality of some variety. Whereas some someone could write a better article, you know, than Ben's and also about similar concepts, but, you know, describe it better or say, you know, have a different opinion. And if they don't have that track record, if they don't have the fame of being successful in tournaments, people aren't going to read it as much. So, in fact, that person doesn't necessarily doesn't get paid anything effectively for their for their work even though it might actually be more valuable it's just like the question most people don't actually know what being good at magic is what's good magic like that's one of the problems i think with magic as an esport that we don't have commentating and we don't have games that the average viewer can watch and understand what's going on and why like these plays are really cool or really great and you know, we end up to the point where we're just like, oh, they're a great player, they're a great player, they're a great player. Oh yeah, they're a really great player. And you know, at some point that just stops meaning anything. And you don't, you know, you don't. We don't want commentators critiquing the players and saying, oh, they 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 made a mistake and stuff like that. That doesn't happen. And instead, you know, they have them discuss other things they could do and stuff. But the commentators still often don't necessarily know, you know, the, what's going on all the time, and they can't always catch these like 
great plays that are made to maximize a tiny thing, you know. Um, and I think we have been getting better and better levels of commentator, but it, so it's not like people love to blame the commentators, but I think it's much more just the fact that for you to really get a lot out of magic watching it, you have to understand it at a relatively high level. And people don't often understand but because the, the the plays, let's say, in League of Legends that a pro makes are super flashy and cool. You can just see it. You'd be like, whoa, you know, how do they do that? Whereas in Magic, it's not usually flashy. It's usually very subtle. And people can't necessarily tell. Nobody, very few people could actually, I think, tell you accurately who the top 10 players in the world are right now. Could I even say it? I don't know. I haven't necessarily watched everybody enough, right? But I think I'm at the level where I could I could judge the people that at that caliber. But are there more than 100 people who can? I don't know. So when it comes back to article writing, how do you actually know to trust this person? Usually it comes down to their results, their pedigree, and their level of fame. Like with Ben Stark, going back to him again, you know, for years, LSV and Marshall and company would create this narrative that he's the best limited player in the world. And Not true. Not true. Well, <laughs> I just wanted to. Say I mean, that. I I don't think it's true, but <laughs> I, I do think he's very good. But it's I don't think he's the best limited player in the world. I think that the narrative has overtaken the truth, and that it's at the point where that matters more than what the truth is. When you look at someone like Siggy, who has a reputation as a limited player, but nothing like what Ben Stark's rep is, and you know for the last three months or something, he's finished number one in the limited rat ladder. He, he has the he had back in the day he had like the highest limited rating on Moto. You know, he's he's great. Like, and as someone who's teamed with with both him and Ben Stark, and done in house drafts with and against both of them, I'll say that you know, oh. Ben Stark oh. feels closer to the buy than than than, uh, than a real opponent a lot of the time. Whereas whereas Siggy is you know someone who I, I encounter in the finals of a lot of these drafts. So it's a humble brag, I guess, too, for me. But. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, unrelated, but just wanted to mention it. I, like just this past uh, Mythic Championship, I think one of the exciting moments, like it's flashy plays in League of Legends, but exciting moment was like people waiting for for Shouta to be able to cast a Bullet Citadel. That that's like the peak of commentary. Like can't yeah. wait, can't wait for them to get to cast that. So, um, so wacky cards, not not like yeah, not cool subtle plays that like you know sequencing that you do this and then this and you hold back on this so that you can eventually, you know, get a slightly bigger tempo advantage. Like a thing like I remember when Jeskai was a deck in standard, it was like Mantis Rider, Goblin Rabble Master. You know, the the two there were weren't really great two drop threats, but there were like there's Lightning Strike and that type of thing. You know, and some counter spells basically. So. Often when you were on the play, if you'd go turn three, like play your three drop, they would just kill it and then untap play theirs and hit you. And you'd actually lose tempo from having been on the play. So what I didn't, like, nobody else seemed to be doing was oh, in that tournament, wow. when I was on the play, I would just not play my three drop on turn three. I would just pass. So they would play theirs, I would kill it, and then I would get mine in and get the first hit and get the snowball started. So then on their next turn, instead of playing another threat, they would have to spend their fourth turn playing like a lightning strike on my threat and then I again could you know apply more pressure so it's like that's like a subtle example of like timing and and it's weird because it feels like you're not doing something but you actually the way of the sequencing to get it so that you maximize your turns similarly like you know in uh 
there there was like a the Mardu vehicles mirror like you I remember I I, I taught the Saito this when I played a game the Pro Tour where I had had Heart of Kieran but I didn't play it turn two I played it turn three when he when I was on the draw so that he, on his turn four he has Fragmentize and he has Gideon in his hand what does he play if he's if he plays Fragmentize the Gideon's I get to play my Gideon first onto the board if he plays Gideon I get to play my Gideon and kill his Gideon with a heart and you know that verse where so I played it on turn two he can fragmentize and then he's clear to play as Gideon on on turn four so like thinking about how your opponents use their mana and making them use it in an awkward way it's something that's a little subtle and you don't necessarily notice it when you're watching a game sometimes you're like oh why didn't they play that you know but you don't the commentators sometimes don't explain it and and those are like pretty cool plays like I thought you know in, for instance the MPL league when I played Monored one time there's a point where I didn't play a Fnatic Filebrand turn one because I know it would just get shocked and then on turn two my opponent could play Runaway Steamkin and then I would have to, instead of playing my Steamkin or instead of, I would have to use like a Lightning Strike instead of being able to, you know, save that for Chain Whirler. So instead I just passed, Steamkin came down, I Firebranded it, Chain Whirler came down, I Lightning Striked it and then, you know, my opponent had a bunch of burn spells still left in hand, but I'd answered the threats with the efficient way. So it's, it's like, there's things, things like that that are, I don't know if I've explained it necessarily well enough, but yeah, I can, the, 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 the fact is that like the, using your mana efficiently is important. And, and especially with like haste threats, you know, you, you like the Just Guy Mirror was, you you know, being able to hit with one before your opponent can answer it is also a big advantage when often late games just burning people out, for example. But I think the, the tempo swing of answering your opponent's threat and then untapping and playing your own and then forcing them to answer it on their next turn instead of playing their big threat, like, if you can force your opponent to have to spend a two, play a two-mana spell on turn four instead of getting to play their own four-mana spell... But I think that's a pretty big game for you because they're wasting two of their mana on turn four, which is more important than wasting two of it on turn two. If that makes sense. Because, like, especially the way magic and standard looks, the four drops are just so much more powerful than the two drops. And things snowball out of control pretty quickly. I guess in current standards, like the five drops that are really busted, like Nyssa and Big Teferi. Um, but still just sequencing things in a way that your, your opponent has to use their mana awkwardly is valuable. Little Teferi, I guess, is the most recent example of this, where you want to force them to bounce something that you're happy to get bounced, or lose their Teferi so that they maybe can't play it on turn three, and then if they have to play it later in the game, then, you know, they've wasted their mana on that turn, or they've learned, gone their Teferi burnt, there's there's ways you can sequence to make things to just get small advantages on the exchanges that can you know later snowball I think it's like a uh, man I could I could see us doing a uh, tough uh, not tough a, a video course on this because it's like the 
like the the easiest example is the counter spell example. Like back in the day, you, you don't want to be playing Jace first because if if it gets negated, countered, and then they slam their Jace, uh, you're so far behind. But now, like these other examples, is like beyond the, that, the, which is the standard counter spell uh, concept. Yeah. Here, it's like um, also like the the it's more nuanced, like the Gideon fragmentized thing, and um, yeah, just. For me, like they're, they're in the standard format, there have been times a lot where you don't just play out your spells. And uh, loosely, loosely linked is when I've played against Gruul or something with Lightning Bolt, and I had a Paradise Druid, but no other land in my hand, a Nissa in hand, and, and I didn't. I have the option of tapping out and playing like I don't know some Jaylate Rangers or Shalai, but it's just for, worth way more to just not tap my Druid so that. Like they have two mana untapped and and just make sure I, I can cast this the next turn and win. Yeah. Um, yeah. Identifying what's important and what the key spots in a game are is is very advantageous. I mean, it, it just it leads to wins a lot more than necessarily just the cards that you draw. Figuring out how to use them and how to make your opponent use their cards poorly. And that's one of the reasons it's very important to know, like, the cards that your opponent could have, you know, whether it's combat tricks and removal unlimited or, you know, interaction spells, especially sideboard cards and constructed. I think a common scenario we've both faced in playing is when we're against a counterspell deck and they have mana untapped to counter, and you know they're, they're repping a counter and they probably have it. Yeah. And... You you have a spell that you can cast, and a lot of scenarios like, do I even do I play it to, to fish out the the counter, or do I do nothing? And there's a lot of factors to that like what you have on board, are you ahead or not? Because if you pass and you're you know, you're just crunching in, then they have and they don't have a draw spell, then you've effectively made them not use their turn either. But but then you didn't do anything, so it feels weird. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's. It's super nuanced. It's there's no clear answer right there whether you should necessarily do it or not. Um, I mean, certainly, like one of the big things, let's say in, in Glimmer of Genius Standard, was timing your spells that they would need to counter around the turn they want to cast Glimmer, so that Glimmer gets stuck in their hand more often, and then so they, instead of having the opportunity to cast Glimmer and find the answers they need for, let's say, what you snuck before their counter spells, or find a counter spell for your next thing, you know, you just you force them to counter it, and then next turn, play yet another spell, and they don't have a counter spell, they can Glimmer, or they're just dying, whatever. And I think that's that's pretty important. Knowing when to hold spells and not just let them counter is valuable too. Uh, and we, we talked about this a little bit with like duress and thought erasure. You know, like when you draw those, you often want to wait till you draw a spell you can resolve from with them. And it kind of goes the other way too. Sometimes you draw the spell and you want to wait till you draw the duress or the thought erasure to resolve your spell. Uh, the way standard is right now, as it's usually as for mirrors, are the only times where there's counterspells and not really that many counterspells anyways. It's more discard, so you usually want to play your spells right, yeah. as soon as possible. But in formats where it's more counterspell heavy, sometimes that's the case. And yeah, it's, I mean, the, the timing there is important. What's often ideal in those scenarios is that if, even if you have a if you have an instant that you want to cast, you, you just wait till your opponent's end step to cast an instant, force them to counter that, and then you untap and play your other spell. 
that's the play pattern that works the best against counter spells because then you tax their mana rather than necessarily the counter spells they have in their hand. You could could be both a little bit, you know. Um, but it's that that's really the cost of having a counter spell in your deck is the fact that you have to keep up that mana at all times because counter spells aren't an answer other than the stack. And the benefit is that you can answer any threat and before that it gets to do anything, right? Like, before a Planeswalker gets to activate once, and, you know, if you have the Elder spell, you can kill kill that Planeswalker, but it's already activated, whereas a Counterspell prevents that from ever happening. And it's tricky. I mean, it's it's also important to know as the Counterspell player when you should be holding up Counterspells and when you should not be. You know, how much does it cost you to hold that Counterspell up? Because... You know, it's. I think a lot of people, for instance, don't pay enough to hold up counterspell. There, let's say they have a counterspell and a removal spell in hand, and your opponent attacks with their creature, and they take it. They go to 16. That's correct, probably, because you can hold up the counterspell. But some people will just kill a creature and stay at 18 life or something, and then something gets cast post combat. I think most people know that that's that that's wrong. But when you're at 10 life or something, you're going to go to eight. Then it's a little closer, right? What it, you know, if you're certainly if that creature's killing you, you need to cast the removal spell. Also, you know, you probably could have cast a main phase, doesn't matter too much. Just it's always dependent on the situation and what you think the risks and rewards are of, of either play. Man, I think, I think, oh man, it's gonna be tough. That's why, that's why good MTG courses would take a lot of work. Because you would actually, I would actually want to like go back and find all these examples, like Heart of Kieran, uh, all the things we mentioned, um, and to compile all that, and then like in a yeah high quality uh, uh, method is going to be tough. And I find it hilarious that uh, we've somehow tricked ourselves into this conversation when it was just about like esports at one point. Um, so. I can. I didn't just. Yeah, we started with just like esports conversation, organization. Then you brought it to streaming, and then we had this like yeah, who's timing. Tricking who? who's oh yeah, tricking maybe who you tricked t- time class. <laughs> All I want, like my conclusion that I wanted to say for like 20 minutes now, was just to get that you probably agree with me that these esports these small time places if they had any money at all they probably shouldn't be hiring like five randoms and probably using all that money to try to get one superstar just because of how like the value of a superstar is way more I, I don't know what the word is proportionally more I guess than like yeah a bunch of average dudes like or yeah like, like the formerly known as game podcast now arena decks podcast like how many table for twos are worth you know one one arena decks podcast in terms of like if if you're a sponsor and it's a lot right you get a lot <laughs> lot more bigger reach from from a real podcast and from just two guys talking nonsense so <laughs> people love our show man we've got okay yeah. we had a lot I, I appreciate all the all the people saying chiming in saying how much they, they've been enjoying it there's a bunch of uh, people that's uh, shipped us uh, some coffees and based on how oh, because it said GIF <laughs> GIF I looked I looked it up you know and um, in fact the original creator. Yeah, yeah, that's the. <laughs> I've says, also looked you know at that, all right? the videos to says, see what says, the debate is. It says, says GIF. It was 
but then people afterwards want GIF because that's how it's spelled. Yeah, <laughs> and then there's a lot of uh, the counter to the to the creator thing is like. I've watched this video that like Shakespeare and whatever came up with a lot of words and they pronounce those differently so you can't use that argument so you know people are really passionate about this topic yeah um, I'm not particularly passionate about gif versus gif or gif versus gif but <laughs> I do enjoy the the format of as watching them <laughs> uh, I want I, I, again I want to give shout outs to everyone but the way the coffee account works I think they don't show, I don't know if you can donate without creating an account, but they don't show the, the account names um, publicly, and, and I guess unless you create an account. So I don't know if a lot of people like your parents, uh, <laughs> I, I don't care about keeping it anonymous, but some people might care. Um, yeah, just make an account called Car Young Tom's Parents, and then, <laughs> then, then I can troll him back for his parents supporting the podcast too. Uh, but Amage. Image uh, shipped us uh, each a coffee, and oh. uh, he was you know, cheers made to that. Image, but but a lot of other people. Um, so if you guys, some of you, donated coffees and wanted to be a shout out, I just just letting you know. That's why I might not be name dropping you, just in case you guys would rather remain anonymous. Um, so a topic I want to talk about because that I tweeted out that that we were looking for topics, and mental game was came out a lot, and. I, I would recommend being mental. <laughs> no, but mental mantel, man. Shout out to that guy. Oh wow, that 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 brings me back. Um, okay, we should tell that story where he was so drunk. We were at the top of what was it, the Atlanta yeah, hotel? We were, yeah, we were in Atlanta hotel, and we we'd been do we did a booze cube, I recall. <laughs> and uh, and at one point there was some like enchantment that makes him have to drink whenever anybody else has a drink. And like Pascal and him got into some combo that basically they both have to keep drinking and drinking. And so, but we like let and like Mantel died or something in the game, and then but not in real life. And then <laughs> Pascal was still supposed to drink like 160 more drinks or something, and we like let him out of it. But he had to like he was super scared of heights. He had to go up the elevator to the top. Oh yeah. Press. So, meanwhile, I was. I was also been cursed. I had to talk like a pirate the whole time. <laughs> I don't remember any of this. <laughs> so, with a Andrew Navarai was there, and uh, yeah, we went up, we went up all the way to the top. Pascal's freaking out, especially because as we got, it seems like this elevator's accelerating as we go to the top, and it starts making this big beeping noise, like bah, 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 eh, 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 and it does go pretty yeah, up high, and it's going up like and it's way high. high, and we're just like Pascal's completely freaking out. And turns out Dave Mantel had accidentally been pressing it's like the fire alarm button or whatever on the side. That's what been making this beeping noise. But we were just all even I was freaking out a bit. I'm like, what the hell's going on? So we finally get to the, the top, and there's just like a tiny railing, right? And Pascal's like freaking out his mind. And there's a window to the outside, and I'm just like looking at him, like, come on, Pascal, you have to look at the window. He's like, no, I cannot. And then Dave's like, come on, it's completely safe. And he runs, and he like, boom, just like shoulders it, you know, like like yeah. somebody in a movie trying, who breaks down a door immediately, you know, that's the movement he's doing. He's like, see, he could support an elephant. He does it again, and the glass is like, you know, bending. And and KYT and I were both, we're, we're both, scared. yeah, we're both staying at his place too. So we're just, I'm just like joking, I'm like, what what do we tell his wife? We're just like, yeah. uh, hey, we need to go pick up our bags, but. Um, Dave kind of fell off the top of a building when he got really drunk and smashed into the window. <laughs> but even that, that was that was funny because we we like 
he was in no state to drive drive us back to his place. So we ended up crashing in a room where there were, the room was Craig Wesco and three Canadians. And the Canadians all had to leave for early flights. And so we like crashed. So Wesco went to sleep with those three guys in the room. And he woke up with the three of us in the room oh, instead. <laughs> just like imagine that. You wake up and there's three different people in your room. Uh, wow, that was one, of, that was one of my early Wesco interactions, I think. Uh, so yeah, th th that was funny. Also, I, at some point, I stopped talking like a pirate when, and ended up playing a game of werewolf for the first time, and it was a lot of fun. So that was a, that was a fun trip. Fun trip. I think that's the first. Like, I think GP Atlanta's always held close to that place. I've been to that venue at yeah. least twice. It feels like it's a cool and venue. I think that's the first time I met uh, the game of werewolf when I first met Nee Fam. I think no, well, maybe. What? Um, anyway, <laughs> why did I bring this up again? Oh no, Mental Mental, because that's his Twitter name. Yeah, so Mental Game. Um, the, the Mental Game, so, uh, people wanted to ask us about that, and I think it was, I will, it was addressed on, on the Bash Bros, so, I, I, but also on, on, I replied to a tweet by, by Jamie Topples, um, who tweeted out, I'm just gonna read this tweet. How, how do you not beat yourself up after making a mistake? I punted away a win on camera at MTG DC Tilted. I threw a game in the next match as well. I composed myself and just missed day two, losing the win in during round eight. Trying to focus on the good and move on. Advice, uh, before I let you answer, um, on, on the Bash Bros podcast, what, what I found interesting was Brad um, admitted to himself that uh, well to the, to the show to the listeners that he, he recognizes his flaws uh, as a human and that he couldn't you know discuss his losses uh, or how he performed at the mythic championship right away that he needs a few times to cool down and stuff like that and I think I think that brings up a good point where whether it be you know some poker players they even if they're expert professional been playing for years they know that if they take a bunch of bad beats they actually have to take a break because they'll, they'll no longer be playing their a or a plus game and so i think that recognizes that even if you take advice you have to take into account that you're not you can't be a robot like some of us can but i don't think most of us can can be a robot and need to take these measures that allow us to um you know what i'm saying right like just um recognizes our, our human flaws so come up with strategies that um, allow us to cope with this stuff um, so with, with, with Jamie's question I mean I've told myself a lot to move on to focus and I think that's really okay, yeah this is what I want to say it's really hard because the way PTQs like the PTQ grind especially I can tell myself, oh man, I'm going to have an opportunity like this in the future, but in the moment it's really hard, like how many times have I been in the finals of, of a PTQ? Not that many. Um, so it's easy to tell yourself, okay, there'll be more opportunities in the future, but, or if I was Brad, like how many times am I going to be playing for 100k right there? It might happen again, but it might never happen again. Maybe the yep. game dies, and there's never a Mythic Championship like that ever again. And you did miss a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And um, in Magic, with PTQs, it's very first or, or last for, for a lot of us that, that really just care about the invites. So it's hard in the moment to be like, oh, man, you know, next, next thing. And sometimes it's like you've been pre preparing 
that's why it's so demoralizing. You've been preparing all week for this GP. You start 03, right? And, and, and then, like, what do you do? You're, you're just there in another city, and you have nothing to show for it. And maybe it's one milkshake. of the last. <laughs> milkshake. Chocolate milkshake. And maybe it's one of the last GPs of that format, too. And you're like, oh, yeah. Okay, I, I, I wish the, the format lasted a bit longer. So, yeah, all I'm saying, it is just hard. So, take it away. All right. Well, you you went into a lot there. I mean, I I got this this nice quote that that I think applies here a little bit. Is the uh, the master's failed more times than the beginner has even tried, and that's uh, you know something to take into account. That like I've played a lot of Magic. I've lost a lot of times, a lot of times, and a lot of important times, and a lot of heartbreaking times, and a lot of you know huge losing streaks, and so. I've experienced that, and I kind of, you know, in, have have already hit a lot of the lows, like incredibly unlikely lows. So you have one, you just have one PTQ win for someone of your caliber. It's like, what? yeah, well, that's because I just crushed it after that. You know? But no, <laughs> but it's it's more like the thing is, I've I've already experienced like you know losing in horrible ways over and over and over again. So now like. I'm used. I've I've experienced it before. I know what it's like, and it's so it's not as bad. I've learned some coping mechanisms, and some is one of the things for for me is that whenever I make a big mistake, I just and I catch the mistake, I just you know stop and I'm like, all right, you know, I'll worry about that later and how I can fix that and what I should have done instead. But you know, this game is still going. This tournament's still going, and my goal is to just play as well as I can onwards. You know. I, there's no use crying about the spilled milk, right? You've you've made that mistake, and now you have to figure out how to do it. Like a famous scenario, you know, is Mahara versus PV in the top eight of worlds. And Mahara starts going off. He's playing Dragonstorm against Paulo's Boros deck. And Mahara didn't necessarily need to go off that turn. He could have waited one turn because he has a repeal in his hand. And he's not that close to dying. But it turns out he miscounted his mana. He's one mana short on being able to go off with Dragonstorm. So he thinks and thinks. Instead of, like, you know, tilting off and just scooping or something, he decides the play for him is to repeal a Savannah Alliance, which costs two mana, and if he draws a Rite of Flame, he's already played two Rite of Flames, so this Rite of Flame will give him an additional three mana, and then he could Dragon Storm. And he's already... He, he, again, he has to find one of two Rite of Flames, aura, and he gets there. He finds... He find, he draws is a Rite of Flame. Is this on video? It's on video, yeah. And it... Visibly, you see him that you know he screwed up. Yeah, he pauses. Even the commentators realize it. Paulo starts to realize it. You can see, you know, and yeah, and he repeals and finds it. He's already cast his rituals. Right, he goes ritual, ritual, and then just pauses. You know, he's like, oh crap, I only have eight mana, not nine. And he fires off that repeal and gets there. So like, obviously, he got really lucky here in that spot, and obviously, he played badly. He should have not gone for it there. But after he made his mistake, instead of just tilting about it, he he pauses. He figures out, takes a takes a moment to collect himself first of all, and then figures out, okay, what do I go from here? What is my best line now that I made this mistake? And I think you have to do that. You have to get yourself. What I get into is in like super like Spock mode, kind of. I guess you know when I'm playing Magic, I try and let my emotions out of it, and you know. They'll, there's time for me to process all that after I finish playing. 
And for me, I try and even process everything at the end of a day rather than at the end of a round. Uh, and during the game, I just go in full full logic. I just go into make my the best play. What is it? Try and figure out what it is. And not worry about anything I've screwed up. Not, not blame myself for anything. I mean, one thing is that, like, you wouldn't blame your best friend for, you know, and hound them and get them tilted after they made a mistake, right, in a, in a tournament. Like, I mean, maybe I would hound you or whatever, but it would be funny. But it, it's, uh, you like, you should treat yourself with the same compassion there and not, not beat yourself up about it because, honestly, it doesn't do you any good. It just, it doesn't help anybody. Just, you know, acknowledge you've made a mistake and move on. Um, but this is stuff that I, I feel... For, okay, like the Mahara story is probably like one of the best stories you could tell on 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 this pod on this topic because it's like yeah. a perfect example of a lot of us. I don't know how I would have acted. Could at least my earlier self would have just given up and conceded. Yeah, he might have just conceded, just been yeah. like you know, okay, I lose, you you got me or whatever. But right. no, he he's like, this is this is how I have to move on. This is the best my best play to be able to win the game because. He just spewed off those two rituals. It's not like he can just, you know, oh, I'll just keep on playing magic. His deck is a combo deck, and he just, you know, so. So for me, it's like in Jamie's case, though, like she's getting all this advice that's similar to what we've said. Right. And it's it's one of those, I feel it's, I guess, cliche lines, easier said than done. Oh, yeah, of course. So, all the stuff is, I mean, so I don't know it's how... incredibly hard to change your own thinking habits something I've learned from, again, when I would coach people that, like, especially people have more experience with magic, it's harder for them to reevaluate their things because they've built up these patterns in their minds, these these ways of thinking, and it's hard to go against that. And similarly, if you have a way of thinking of beating yourself up about bad plays you make, because at some point that was a useful thing for you that helped push you to get better, but now it's no longer useful. How do you abandon that, right. that part of yourself? And it's not that easy. You just have to have to notice the triggers for it and you know react to those triggers and and find some different way to react when those those triggers happen so for you did it take time like were you tilting off or misplays earlier in your career or were you fairly spock like robotic from the beginning well i have like like you have this in the chess background so like i've played in tournaments where you know you know, in chess, it's it's usually much more obvious than in magic that we're screwed up, right? Right. Like, hey, look, my queen. I just I just moved my queen. We're gonna be captured. Dumb, dumb, dumb. You know. Uh, side note: I remember my one of my opponents back when we were kids would be like, oh, I moved my queen. We're gonna be captured. Oh, and they, you know, would would Hollywood it up and just like, oh, slap their face, you know. And it's like, well, you know, it's like, dude, I see that if I take that, you can checkmate me in my back rank. I'm not stupid. Come on, you know. But like. But actually, you know, sometimes people do hang a queen or a piece or whatever. Even the best players in the world at chess still sometimes, like, miss mates in two occasionally. There's, it's, it's, it's happened. And uh, obviously, you know, you have to find some way to go on from that. And it's, you know, it's good to have high standards for yourself, but everybody's human. You have to realize that you're going to make mistakes, and sometimes they're going to be in high-pressure scenarios. In fact, they're more often than not going to be in high-pressure scenarios because those are the spots where it's easier to make mistakes because you're feeling the pressure because you have you know your emotions are bubbling to the surface and that's why i know a lot of people give like you know 
tra trash talk sometimes magic pros for like not showing emotion when they win and stuff and that's because there a lot of them are in this like robotic state kind of you know it's it's robotic spock like whatever zen you could call it too because you're just doing and not thinking about the doing it's like i tell people that if you're thinking about that if you win this round that you'll win the tournament you'll get to qualify for this next mythic championship and go to that then not all of your mental energy is being spent on making your best plays and focusing on the game and you're at a disadvantage so you know i've definitely struggled with things during during years you know like i still fall prey to that sometimes like if i win this round i'll lock up this platinum platinum status or whatever or you know lock up top eight or and you, you have to somehow fight against that even though it's hard you have to stay in the present moment and just focus on what you're doing so i the ch the chess and math thing uh brings a lot of memories like one specific memory is actually a tournament i played don't remember how old i was but I was playing an opponent, and multiple times where I would make a bad play or hang a piece or a pawn, I would uh, sigh or, or do something to the point where after the game, my opponent was kind enough to tell me that he, he like saw that I was doing that at every time and took advantage or like knew. So I was playing, I'm like, then I remembered myself each time doing a specific physical movement or a, or a gigantic sigh. And that's when I learned not not to do that anymore. And he and whoever that person was, thank you, uh, because <laughs> I, I I was able to learn from that to not. Uh, yeah, I mean certainly don't do that. Like if you make a mistake and you just go, oh I can't believe I did that. Oh wow, now you can attack for lethal. I'm so dumb. You know, like don't let your opponent know that he screwed up. Right, even if you yourself identify it. It was. Uh, it's more subtle, it was more subtle than that, but yeah. I, I, no, I figured that, I thought you just like, you know, you're like making a mistake and you're like, oh no, and you just pull out like a, a, like a fly swatter and you just keep hitting yourself in the face. You're like, bad, can't wait, do bad. You know? um, so, it, yeah, for, for, for me, the, the reason I think it's, it's, I recognize for me why it's hard is the examples I gave because of... Um, I, th I think like whether it's chess or, 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 or poker, chess tournaments, like at chess and math, it was like, okay, I can do well the next month. Same game, same stakes, it doesn't matter. Chess, if you're like a cash game grinder, you can play thousands of hands a day, you make a bunch of mistakes, you can play the same thousand the next day. But, but Magic, it just feels like a lot of scenarios just feels like it's that moment. Like after I won the Arena Super Cup, there was an MCQ. Sick breaks, yeah. MCQ, the last one of the format, and I'm like, now that I have so much knowledge and I feel so good at this standard format, if I don't uh, maximize my, if I don't win this, then like it's gone because the, the format's gonna r rotate. It's gonna be the modern MCQ. So there's a lot of situations that, that make you feel like you have to take advantage or else. Or like, yeah. like the flying to the GP. Like you, some people, literally test for weeks right for that local gb well, and i remember back the in the day i would test test for like weeks with friends for a ptq because we we would get i get to play like four of those a year or something it was a special occasion and so yeah. like, i i get it you know yeah. and you don't, you still have to view magic as a numbers game because otherwise you'll lose your sanity right because you know the best player doesn't win any given tournament the best player wins overall a higher percentage of their matches and I don't actually think any player has played enough of a sample to actually know, you know, how much they actually are supposed to win. You know, it, it's it's just the sample sizes are just so low, 
and especially because the tournaments that actually matter are relatively few. Yeah, yeah. But you have to, you have to not think about that. And you just have to yeah. be like, look, I'm just gonna keep. You're just gonna play. You're gonna try your best. You have to focus on what you can control, right? These outside factors like luck and your opponents and you know the weather that day, whether you get into a car accident on the way there, or whatever. You can't control any of that stuff. Well, I guess you can be a better driver, but you focus on your preparation and your play. And you do that. And, like, you know, I know there's, again, another chess saying of, you know, you win, you teach, and you lose, you learn. Obviously, imagine it's not always the case because of variance. But still, like, I think when you make a punt, a horrible punt, you should take that as an opportunity to learn from it. You know, be like, thank yourself for this learning experience. Sometimes what I do is I, I in fact, I, I just write down, like, a note for myself that I can read after the match and I can, like, you know, reflect on. But I still, I'd be lying if I said I still don't have, like, misplays from back in the day that still haunt me that I still think about, like, even just now. I can imagine, like, you know, one of the PTQ finals where I made, like, a small error that ended up snowballing and making me lose that finals where I felt pretty favored. And, you know, <laughs> I another, another, another spot, you know, in a, a PT where, like, I made a... I made a, a stupid blunder and that ended up like costing me getting to worlds one year you know because that one pro point so and that that's you know a relatively small thing but ends up having big repercussions so yeah but that's just there's the thing is there is always another tournament even though it seems like there's not there there is and you know as long as you focus on the process and just focus on yourself and treating yourself kindly and trying to improve and learning from your mistakes and doing the best you can eventually results will come and eventually you'll get better and better and I think that's the healthiest way to just have to, to play magic at a, at competitively because if you look at results as the thing that matters you're just never going to be satisfied right so one thing that's helped me personally um, never doing well <laughs> is is uh it's not due to this show it's over the years just talking to you and other people that that i respect which other people i can't name them right now but okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> um is is that i'm able like the, the reason i felt bad is like that example of needing to use all that knowledge now before it goes to waste but i realized and with all the higher level concepts we've talked about on this show is that i have become better I can't, there's there's stuff that I can transfer over and become a better overall magic player. And that's what that like something that I can take from format to format and that's so I can see like mentally it's like I see this chart of increasing magic skill and that that gives me optimism, positivity to to keep moving forward. Yeah, I think that in general that that should always be the goal uh, if you're going to if you want to take competitive magic seriously you should be thinking in the long term and for the long term you want to be improving your magic skill you know that's it's like that's like leveling up your character you know right. versus buying items which is what like you know being good at this standard because you got a sideboard guide <laughs> we talked about it or whatever more like a deck list from whatever article you know that's like getting getting some item that you you bought on an online store or whatever you know but, versus like actually leveling up your character and getting better you know someone with a overpowered item can still beat you but you're in general especially as time goes on you're gonna get better and better and well i guess i, I we recognize why it's tough because people 
we talk about like people don't talk about these higher level concepts enough so oh, they don't if people don't know that they're improving and they just feel like how i felt where it's like you know i only have the standard knowledge or else i'm if i lose i'm screwed type like they, they have to be able to educate themselves that there are all these concepts that they can improve on and learn about and and most people i, I think most players don't know how to evaluate themselves like that yeah i think people both don't know really how to improve and they don't know how to measure their improvement. They don't know either of those things. So obviously, why would they try to improve? Why would they try and measure that when they have no way of knowing either thing? Instead, they'll just take the, the quick fix, get a deck list, a sideboard guide, and play that and, and learn about standard, let's say, this current standard. And that's somewhat useful. I think you need to put in pre like research and preparation into a format. But I think that should be like... 10% of your of your effort. I think not the other 90% should be going into improving your general skills. And I think when you if you put the effort into just the standard thing, you'll only get 10% into into your skills out of it. And then the next form will come around and you just have to do everything again from scratch and it's a lot more work, you know. It's uh it's kind of like you know, you, you were talking about mythic and you like if you are good at magic, you'll always start at platinum or whatever, and you can get up to mythic with a little bit of effort versus starting at the bottom and getting up to mythic every time. And I do think that it is important to to do that, and I think that people are really not putting enough effort into that, partly because, as you said, there's just the tools aren't available because people don't want to do that. And it, self, it, it perpetuates the cycle that, you know, the articles provide what people want, and the people aren't able to understand necessarily what's actually best for them in terms of getting better. But it's different, though, if you just want to take a casual approach to Magic, like casual competitive approach, I should say, and you just, you know, want to play a couple tournaments a year, then you should just focus on those tournaments, prepare for those, rather than focus on on Magic improvements. I, I'm, I'm going to finish... Uh... We'll wrap up the show with a topic that I said I want to talk about last show, which might span through the next show, um, which was pattern recognition. And, and um, I, I really wanted to quote Jeremy Silman. I'm not sure what edition this was or what book it was, but he said... He probably owned it, though. The acquisition of chess patterns is the main ingredient for chess mastery. And this is where I don't even know if you're going to have... Uh, a, a good answer for, for the question because I'm going to be I'll putting you, you on the spot. I'll tell you nothing prepared because yeah. I don't prepare for this podcast. <laughs> but but I'm, I'm putting you on the spot. So we basically, have no script here. This is just <laughs> this is two two friends, KYT drinking a cup of coffee, me looking at my sad empty cup, <laughs> you know, sitting down chatting. Um, I'm not even sure if they fixed it. Um, oh, they didn't. <laughs> I, I keep looking over it every every couple of minutes to see like, please plug into the water. Like, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> the reason I love to compare to chess uh, so much not not because we both have uh, backgrounds in it but because the game itself is so much older and has so much literature and, and, and strategy in it that it, like I actually am always curious about what we can apply from that world to something like magic where it has far less literature than both poker and chess like magic has you know when you think of, of books you think of like the the two books Patrick Chapin came out with or um I don't know, the Oh My God Flores audio book. Um, there's not much out there. And uh, so so this pattern thing makes me think of, 
So for, for chess, like I, I mentioned in the last show, I feel like I'm easily better than, than a lot of beginners because of pattern recognition. If even just like solving puzzles or tactics, you quickly learn the weak F7 square, weak uh, classic fork spot if you're white, the C7 square, the fork, the rook, and the king. Shout out to all the chess listeners. And so you're able to quickly see that and focus your mind on the more complicated strategic part, whereas like the beginners already, you know, they're already gonna lose the simple tactics. And I feel the, the comparison in magic would be there's some interactions that you beginners will either need to see or play through or run into to be able to know something as simple this might be super simple to you alex but like something as simple as knowing a good play to get rid of a a phoenix uh what's the full name of the phoenix now excuse me rekindling phoenix rekindling phoenix is like let's say lightning bolt on your turn play a chain whirler or um even legions landing and hitting City's Blessing, where you can attack, trigger Legion's Landing, make a token, and that will allow your guys to gain flying, or, or plus three, plus three. And if you, you're a noob, <laughs> you're a noob that hasn't, that doesn't notice interaction, you won't, won't be able to unlock um, those plays in your mind. I feel like almost like your mind, you're, you have a magic skill tree, and, and you have to be told or learn these interaction. So I have multiple questions for you, Alex. Clearly, number one, is that I feel like you know these interactions faster even without having seen them than the average person. And like, do you know why that is? Is it all that experience? And and because we, we know we, you don't grind a lot in general, but is it all that grinding, not grinding, but all that playing you did before that makes you s see these patterns of play so fast or because you can look at the cards and, and they're similar to cards that you've played with in the past? Like, I'm really curious if you know the answer to this, why? Yeah, well, I mean, I think there's definitely some pattern recognition happening that happens in Magic. I think that there are spots that are similar to other spots you've encountered, especially combat, I think, is where that comes up the most. Like, you know, you've, there's a 1-3, a 2-2, two, two versus a 3-3 a, a three, three or whatever, and you know you sh right away that you shouldn't attack, right? Because they just block and they trade for one of the things. And that, you can do that pretty quickly. The thing with Legion's Landing is a relatively, you know, different scenario, let's say. The Phoenix thing is is also, I guess, somewhat unique. And, but those are patterns that you can build up pretty quickly, both of those things. You know, Legion's Landing, you should always be, if you have a bunch of Ascend things, you should always be counting your permanents and realize, hey, I can get one more from the Legion's Landing. And then the Phoenix, it only takes like a couple times of playtesting against that where you learn that play pattern. Uh, in general, I think that Magic has less pattern recognition than chess by a large amount. That's one of the reasons I like it, is that what I like about Magic is that it stays fresh because there's always new things you have to figure out and new scenarios you get put into. Whereas in chess, there are new, but they're all relatively similar scenarios. And I think that basically in magic the thing that i have going is from a lot of these games is i built up good fundamentals and that's what i have that a lot of other people don't necessarily have that i have you know the, there are these patterns that picked up but also i have shortcuts effectively in my mind of like what how to how to think about different problems that can occur in a game of magic like how do i win how do i win get ahead in this combat how do i, I answer this threat and, you know, 
immediately I can shortcut to like those things that I built up. And now is that pattern recognition? It is somewhat, but it's it's a bit different too, right? I think that you know, talking about books, I think Patrick Chapin wrote something back about how, who has the who has the best shortcuts wins or something. And I don't fully agree with that, but oh, yeah, I think it's yeah. I think it is important. It is very important to have shortcuts because you can't just spend forever tanking on a plane magic. And frankly, a lot of people can't don't really have the processing power to work through every single possibility. Just like we I, we don't in chess either. But you don't look at the possibility where you you know you move your queen up where it's going to be taken, and you know there's a whole bunch of squares you can move your pieces to where they'll be captured. You immediately can shortcut and eliminate all those, right? And there's some things you can do somewhat like that in Magic to short to decrease the number of decision trees to a manageable number. And so while other people are going through five decision trees, I only have to look through two. And it makes it a lot faster for me to figure out something. But also I, I know from some pattern recognition, I know usually which branches are usually going to end up being better than other branches. That's where pattern recognition kind of comes in. And then, because of my processing power, I can, again, solve these things faster than other people can solve two branching trees. So it's kind of all three of those things put together, I think, that gives me an advantage there. And that's why I really think a huge focus from people should be about how they think about magic, how they approach figuring out problems, you know? Like, what is their thought process? You know, like, imagine you, if you're doing a... A math problem for a class you're not going to just you don't just write the answer right but but a lot of people and when they play magic that's how they do it they just make their play and then after you ask them why they did it and they're like i think it was good it's like someone saying i think it was the right answer to this complicated mathematical formula but no you don't do that you write down your steps right you write you basically write down your thought process which is your steps if you're filling out in, in your exam and then you can get partial marks for some things but also makes it easier for someone else to be like well look I agree with those first three lines of reasoning but your fourth line of reasoning have you considered that your opponent has three cards in their hand and have, has missed a land drop earlier so they're all, almost all spells what spells could they be and then you can be like okay that's what I wasn't thinking about but they have to have this card so it's not, it is worth playing around it even though you know etc just as a rough example and if you can understand the thought process behind how you get to the plays that you make, then you can figure out much more easily where the mistake is along that thought process. Because it's, chances are that most of the process is correct. I doubt that every single thing you think is incorrect, but there's probably a mistake somewhere along the line. And if you can pinpoint it, because I think in Magic the hardest thing is pinpointing your mistakes. I think it's relatively easy to fix them once you know what they are, but knowing what they are is the hardest thing. And that's why there's, you know, there isn't that method for improving because most people don't ever find their mistakes and they just stay at the same level over and over again, making the same mistakes that they just can't notice. They improve the mistakes they do notice, but the ones they don't notice just stay there and keep holding them down. I'm not mad. I'm trying to. I'm trying oh, to I give you a lot. I give you a lot there to, to think about. I guess. I'm trying to think of a difference because it's like. Because it goes back to, to what we talked about in episode two, I think. People who who, who play a thousand games and Yeah. I but mean you build up see I think there's where patterns are really useful. Like in a matchup, let's say Saltai versus Esper. If you play that matchup a hundred times, then you play it again, you're gonna recognize some patterns. 
and that um, then you're just in, you can shortcut through the shortcut phase basically <laughs> and instead instead of doing that phase you just immediately go like oh i remember how this looked and i, I did this like 10 times and i did this other thing 10 times and i won all 10 games i did this and i lost nine of the ones i did this so i should do this other one right and you know that's not you're not actually thinking through things you're not figuring out a process and, and there you're just taking your body of experience and you know using rote memorization basically to figure out what you should do and a lot of people that is what they do and that's what i don't do that which is why i don't need to grind so much which is why i don't grind so much because i don't get as much of a benefit from it because that's not how i approach the game I think that's a fine approach, but I think for a lot of people, that's a hugely time-intensive approach. I think someone like Brad Nelson, that's kind of somewhat of the approach he takes. He just, he jams and jams and jams and jams. And I think you actually ultimately do get an advantage there because you know exactly what to do and you know how to do it right away because you've just seen this exact scenario before. This exact board state where your opponent has three cards in hand, you have five, and then these creatures are in play. Like, you've just seen that scenario before. You don't know exactly the three cards, but the scenario you've encountered ten times before, and you know what to do. Right. So, whereas me, I encounter that scenario, and I have a process by which I figure out what I should do. And I'm not always going to be right. I'm not going to be right as large a percentage of the time, I think, as Brad is, because he's got a thousand games. But I have my process, and my process is going to be right most of the time. And if I'm wrong, I can afterwards look and try and find where I was wrong in my process and learn from that and improve for next time. Whereas the thousand game repetitions method, you don't really, you just be like, okay, well, it was one of those times where it didn't work out. You know, next time maybe I should play more games. You don't really learn anything for the next format. You just have to keep putting in those games like over and over again. So I'm... Hmm. So I, I am seeing the some of the key difference you're mentioning in maybe a different way. Like like in chess when when you solve all these like you know those a thousand and one tactics books that do improve your your if if you're a noob improves your rating by quite a bit. But those the the benefit is you can guess the answer but they'll tell you what the right right answer is. Whereas in magic you can play a thousand games but you don't you don't know what the best play is necessarily. Yeah. And and I think that's a different, or one of the other things that you're supposed to do in chess is like go over Grandmaster games, but there's a lack of that in Magic as well. Right, well also the, th the Thousand One Puzzles or whatever in chess, that is very similar to the, the memorization like approach. You're kind of memorizing these things and you're trying to learn these patterns. And first of all, that's more val valuable in chess than in Magic because if you learn these puzzles when you're five years old and then 90 years later, you're 95 years old, you play a game of chess, they're still useful. Do you think, learning patterns from standard right now how valuable are those going to be if magic exists 90 years from now we're probably going to be playing the game with like our brains you know like you know it's going to look like there's a real dragon that comes out when you cast a shivan dragon like the, some of the stuff is going to be useful because you know like these tempo patterns that you can figure you you maybe you'll pick up something from the patterns that you can learn about right but it's not as useful but also in those chess puzzles if you're just learning these, the, you could you could just be learning these patterns. But if instead you like actually have someone explain to you why this is the way you should go, like how you should be coming up with this, because a lot of times you do these puzzles and it's very different encountering a puzzle where you know there's a solution versus encountering that position in a game where right, you don't necessarily right. know there is, and you have to figure out how to look for these things. 
And if you look for them, like, for instance, you learn the, the thing that, hey, look, the, their king is weak or they're squished or this, this piece is, is defending two different things. And if you can distract it, they'll, you know, et cetera. If you learn those concepts, that's much more useful in general than just using the, the memorization tactic. Whereas the memorization will help you, but I think it's not as valuable and it's a less efficient use of your time than actually understanding the principles. Similarly, if you have, if I have 10 hours to teach someone to chess versus, you know, I'm not going to just teach them to memorize openings. I'm going to teach them opening theory in that, in that, like, you want to control the center, you want to develop your pieces, you want to keep your king safe. And I think that's more valuable, you know, to understand those concepts than to actually just know you know a sequence of moves because something else happens and then you're lost versus something else happens and you can adapt okay that makes sense and i think magic is really adapting is is a key key skill to have well we're gonna wrap this up um what a request for 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 i don't know if we're gonna ever do this but modern horizons draft content this is not a podcast to get specific format content. We just went over that. This is not. That's not what we do here. There's tons of other podcasts you can you can get that at. You know, I, I appreciate the support, but this is a podcast for nonsense, okay? And for and for pretend, ideally trying to like, as Alan Wu kindly said, make you better at magic. A rare that, resource. Yeah, a rare. rare resource. I mean, I honestly do agree with that, though. I don't think there are that many resources, and if if we can be one, if something you people here here can can like click something and then they just start doing something differently and they can get a little bit of a level up in their game I think that's pretty valuable much more so than than telling somebody that they should avoid white in Modern Horizons right shout out to Pro Tour champion Alan Wu yeah got to, got the pleasure to hang out with him at the, the, the Mythic Championship he's a cool guy I think you said that last show already uh, probably alright <laughs> sorry he's a smart guy I'll give him something something new yeah we, we have a bunch of uh, PT uh, top 8 yeah, we got a lot of PT champs, world champs who listen to the show. So shout out to all of you, but also all the people who'd like to be a PT champ or a world champ who listen to the show. I think now, this is probably not the show. You should listen to Jerry's podcast instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think this is this, there's a lot of food for thought. It's made me think of like, but you know, I shouldn't. You shouldn't. People shouldn't have to feel like they need to like, hey, let's jam thirty games of this matchup. Uh, blindly, and um, there's benefit in 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 recognizing the the bigger ideas of the matchup quicker in a more efficient manner. Yeah, basically, instead of spending a thousand hours playing a thousand games of of this current standard, spend that time learning how to think about magic, and then spend a hundred hours learning the standard format. You'll spend more time altogether, but the next standard format you can again spend one hundred hours instead of a thousand, and get to the same point. And uh, it's like an investment now that will pay dividends afterwards. And that's kind of how I manage to not grind all the time compared to some people who play Magic 24-7. Rob Anderson plays every day, man, every night. Yeah, I mean, I do not play Magic every day. I play Magic two to three times a week. <laughs> so, all right. But shout out to Rob Anderson. Shout out to, yeah, shout out to everyone. To everyone? Come on. You got you to single people out. <laughs> Alan Wu. <laughs> Shout out to Warren. Warren, Warren Smith. The no, no, no War, Warren, Warren Buffett. <laughs> Warren Buffett. <laughs> the investor. <laughs> Warren Smith, the... Uh... Yeah, shout out to Warren Smith. All right. That does it for, for us, uh, this episode, and, and uh, we'll talk to you guys. Why do I keep saying that? Peace! <laughs>
Ciao, everyone. Esports Central. Esports.